Welcome, and peace be upon you. So I just finished defending theism for a change, which was a fun challenge. You can listen to the debate on counter-apologetics, or you can watch it on the Exploring Reality YouTube channel. I wanted to expand on those arguments just a little and anticipate some common objections to them. So you might ask, why are you spending even more time defending theism? Aren't you an atheist? Well, yes, but I have an even deeper commitment. A commitment to never, ever, admitting that I might be wrong about something I said. So I want to defend those four arguments I raised in a little more detail, and also explain why I think they're not so overwhelming that I have to be a theist. So in the Devil's Advocate debate, which once again was hosted on the Exploring Reality YouTube channel, I debated Kyle Olander, or Christian Idealism, on YouTube. He's a Catholic and he was defending atheism. I'm an atheist and I was defending theism. Even though there are certain models of God that I think are more plausible, process theism, the interesting Mormon model of God which is a little more naturalistic, or even pantheism, or even leaving theism, you know, aesthetic deism, or something like that. Even though I do assign a higher credence to those models of God than I do to perfect being theism, I still chose to defend perfect being theism because I think it's more in the ballpark of what the average theist believes. So I defended a sort of bare philosophical theism, and the exact definition I used I'm I'm sort of flexible on. I defined God as a necessary being, who is perfectly loving, morally perfect, conscious, personal, and a being of infinite power at the foundation of reality. You can kind of alter those attributes a little bit, and remain squarely within the realm of perfect being theism. So if you want to learn more about different models of God, then you can check out the content produced by Joe Schmid, Majesty of Reason, or Ryan Mullins. It's something I should probably know more about, because when you alter your model of God, that changes the entailments and the predictions of the theory. You know, if we're treating theism like a theory, like an explanation, which that is basically my approach, you know, comparing theism and naturalism as competing explanations of the world, well then it really matters what your model is. It will yield different predictions and have different entailments, depending on your model. So when you're assessing different arguments from evil, the arguments presented don't all count equally against all models of God. I don't see how you can change the model and then all of the evidence has exactly the same weight, has exactly the same impact that it did before. So it really matters, for instance, whether or not you think God can bring about any logically possible state of affairs. Or if, like Mormons, you think that God is sort of constrained by certain physical laws. If you think God created all of nature, all of nature, or you think God is a part of nature, yeah, that makes a difference. But at any rate, I'm defending perfect being theism. So just to say a word about the methodology that I used for approaching this, I think I'm just using a standard sort of Draper-Swinburne approach. If you watch the video I made about Draper's debate with William Lane Craig, I'm basically using the same approach that he used in that debate. So he has this illustration that I think makes it easy to understand. So you have two jars of jelly beans, one is filled with mostly red beans and a small number of blue beans, the other is filled with mostly blue beans and a small number of red beans. And both jars also contain an equal number of yellow beans, so those are just kind of evidentially neutral. So we take a handful of beans from one of the jars and we don't know which one it is, 
and we have more of one color than the other. You know, we have more red beans than blue beans or vice versa. So the evidence is compatible, it's consistent with the beans coming from either jar, but it's surprising on the assumption that they came out of one jar and unsurprising on the assumption that they came out of the other. So it's not that I think hiddenness is incompatible with theism, or psychophysical harmony is incompatible with atheism. It's just that, you know, atheism assigns a higher probability to hiddenness than theism, and theism assigns a higher probability to psychophysical harmony than atheism. If we happened to draw majority blue beans, it's possible it came out of the jar with majority red beans, but the odds are against it. So the only way to do this is to assess the total evidence. You know, you can't just hone in on a few blue beans or a few red beans. Unfortunately, that's what we had to do. You know, it's not like we can settle the whole um, atheism versus theism thing in a YouTube debate. But I think it's still worthwhile to, to hone in on the blue beans or the red beans so you know what the full cumulative case would actually look like, what it would actually entail. So yeah, it's good to hone in on specific arguments and really work through them. So just to back up a step, by evidence, I mean that which makes a hypothesis more probable than it otherwise would have been without that evidence. I think an observation strongly favors theism over atheism if theism assigns to that observation a probability that is bigger than the probability that atheism assigns to that observation. So it's not that all conceivable data would be consistent with theism and consistent with atheism, but I think all the data that we have is consistent with both, it seems to me. But that doesn't change the fact that atheism assigns a higher probability to certain observations than theism does, so that observation is evidence favoring atheism, you know, and vice versa. So the fact that we can explain all the data if we put our minds to it doesn't change the basic judgment that certain observations are more likely on theism than on atheism and vice versa. Something that Kyle emphasized in the debate was the role of simplicity as a theoretical virtue. And I agree that simplicity is a theoretical virtue, but when you're taking this kind of approach that I'm outlining here, I think the main role simplicity plays is in helping determine the prior probability of a hypothesis, or maybe deciding between two explanatorily equal hypotheses. But I don't think it really plays a decisive role in the case of atheism versus theism. Like, I don't think it's the case that having a marginally simpler theory just inflates the prior probability. So atheism or naturalism or whatever is starting with such a head start that they'll never be overtaken. And I don't think that theism being less simple than naturalism just decimates its prior probability to the point that it could not be overcome, even with really strong evidence. So yeah, I mean, simplicity helps out in terms of prior probability, but I don't think it plays this like overwhelming, decisive role. I mean, that's what I was trying to get at when I said, you know, would it really be the case that your world would be turned upside down if the simplest theory wasn't the one that turned out to be true? Or when I was asking, is it really off limits to say, I don't care that you have a marginally simpler hypothesis? The point is that I don't think having a non-simple hypothesis eviscerates the prior probability so that, you know, oh, the conversation's over. You've got a less simple hypothesis. The prior probability is now so low that it can't be overcome. And besides, the whole simplicity thing, I mean, it's just a rule of thumb anyway. Sometimes the less simple hypothesis is the one that turns out to be true. 
Preferring simplicity is not like an inviolable rule. Some people have a kind of aesthetic preference to have, as Quine said, a bare desert-like ontology. But I think it's pretty much just that. It's just an aesthetic preference. It's just an aesthetic preference to give it this exalted place where it's like the main thing that you care about. I think simplicity's main role is just in determining the prior probability. Anyway, if I'm missing something, please feel free to let me know in the comments. Okay, so let's move on to the first argument, the existence of consciousness. So, consciousness is guaranteed to be a feature of the world if God exists, but it's not guaranteed to be a feature of the world if God doesn't exist. So the observation is just consciousness exists, or there's at least one conscious agent, or maybe the way I was just putting it is sort of more intuitive. Consciousness is a feature of our world. It's very easy to conceive of a world in which conscious beings never arise, but on theism, consciousness is guaranteed to be a feature of the world. Theism is incompatible with the non-existence of consciousness. Naturalism is compatible with the non-existence of consciousness. So, consciousness is a feature of the world is an observation that favors theism over naturalism, because it's entailed by theism, it's not entailed by naturalism or atheism or the hypothesis of indifference. Therefore, theism assigns a higher probability to that observation. So, it's evidence that favors theism. I mean, again, that's what evidence means. It means something that makes a hypothesis more likely than it otherwise would have been. It's something hypothesis one assigns a higher probability to relative to hypothesis two. So, I think the best response to this argument is that it commits Draper's fallacy of understated evidence. You know, maybe this very general fact, consciousness is a feature of our world. Yeah, maybe that favors theism over atheism, but maybe more specific facts on the same topic, consciousness, maybe that would favor atheism over theism. At least that's the common response. So is this evidence understated? Consciousness is guaranteed to be a feature of the world, you know, in the broadest sense of the world. In other words, the global existing order of reality, you know, the totality of being, if you want to be even more vague about it. But it's not guaranteed to be a feature of the world in the exact way that we observe. On theism, it's guaranteed to be a feature of the global order, but it's not guaranteed to be a feature of reality in the exact way we observe. So we're embodied creatures, conscious states are correlated with physical brain states. That's absolutely true. So it seems like it might be understated evidence. But a key feature of understated evidence is that the excluded details are more expected on the competing hypothesis, or the excluded details, once factored in, undercut what was originally taken to be evidence, such that it no longer supports the hypothesis. So we'll talk more about this a little later, but one example of understated evidence is, you know, imagine someone's accused of murder, the victim was murdered with a knife, and we find out that the accused bought a knife only 10 minutes before the murder. That could be part of a cumulative case against him. But this evidence is understated because there are more details about the knife that cut against the point being made. That cut against the point being made. Anyway, the knife was a butter knife, and the murder was not committed with a butter knife. So, the facts about the evidence that are being excluded undercut the original evidence, since it's actually not supportive of the hypothesis that the accused committed the murder. 
that he bought a butter knife does not support that claim in any way. That's how understating the evidence works. And I'll say that I think that some evidence for theism is problematically understated. But I'm less sure that this is one of those cases. So what's supposed to be going on? Consciousness is guaranteed to be a feature of the global existing order of reality. Theism does entail a consciousness-involving world, but it's not guaranteed to be a feature of the world in the exact way we observe. We're embodied creatures, conscious states are correlated with physical states. Theism doesn't give us any reason to expect that. True enough. Theism doesn't give us any reason to expect it, but neither does God's non-existence. And besides, how are these observations in conflict with theism? How do they undercut theism? I mean, is it just the idea that there's a physical world at all? Is the existence of the physical world supposed to be that great of evidence against theism? Because I certainly don't see how correlations between physical brain states and phenomenal states, how is that in conflict with God exists? You know, it doesn't really seem like the knife case. So I'm not sure why that matters or changes anything. Does atheism assign a higher probability to the existence of something called brains on which consciousness would be dependent? Okay, God doesn't exist. Now we can deduce that there is going to be some kind of weird, wet tissue mush, and if you mess around with the wet tissue, then consciousness will change corresponding along with it. Oh yeah, I can see how that follows straightforwardly from God doesn't exist. The knife turned out to be a yellow bean. At first it was supposed to be a red bean. You know, it could be part of a cumulative case that the accused committed the murder. But once you stopped problematically understating the evidence, you saw that it was not a red bean, not a blue bean, but a yellow bean. It was evidentially neutral. The fact that the accused bought a butter knife ten minutes before the murder does not support the idea that he's the murderer, and it doesn't detract from the idea that he's the murderer. So understated evidence can go either way. Once the evidence is no longer problematically understated, maybe it turns out to be a yellow bean, maybe it turns out to be a blue bean. Either way, it's understated evidence. But it seems like the details that are being offered, you know, oh, you're excluding these relevant details. And then they offer things that are seemingly irrelevant. The butter knife is a yellow bean. (laughs) Imagine if someone just skipped to this part of the podcast. The butter knife is a yellow bean. When you understate the evidence, it sounds like a red bean. Now, with consciousness, it sounds like, just to stick with the theism-atheism thing, theism, that's supposed to be the blue beans, so I'm just going to stick to that. So I'm saying the observation, consciousness exists, or consciousness is a feature of our world, I'm saying that is a blue bean. The accusation is that it's problematically understated, and then people start adding details. It's true, I excluded those details, but I really don't see how they change anything. Oh, well, there are correlations between physical brain states and mental states. Yeah, so what? I mean, how does that change anything? It's like, oh, the defendant, he bought a knife, and then his lawyer, you know, pounded the table and stood up and said, it didn't have a wooden handle, it had a plastic handle. You know, it's like, okay, you're right that I excluded those details. I'm not sure how they change anything. (laughs) And by the way, I'm not saying this as like an open challenge, you know, like, 
oh, no one has ever elaborated why they think that correlations between physical brains and our minds, like, oh, no one has ever explained why they think that supports atheism. No, people have tried. Like, there are arguments from physical minds. And sometimes theists will just kind of talk about the hard problem of consciousness like it's a problem for atheism. No, this is very common. But the idea that physicalism versus non-physicalism is some kind of proxy war between atheism and theism, I just think that that's a product of the times that we happen to live in. Like, I don't think there's any essential connection between atheism and physicalism. And not that this proves the point, but I think it is worth noting, nonetheless, that many, if not most, of the prominent non-physicalist philosophers of our time are atheists. David Chalmers, Thomas Nagel, Noam Chomsky, and just well-known atheists from history. Bertrand Russell, Schopenhauer, Nietzsche. You know, I saw a news article from, I think, over 100 years ago. There was some uh, famous physicist who said, you know, I don't know a single physicist who's not an idealist. <laughs> you know, I mean, a lot of things in philosophy of mind, they're just kind of cultural trends. They're just kind of these ephemeral, contingent, non-rational social trends. You know, materialism has been having its moment in the sun. I think that's finally coming to an end. Um, it's not because we did more science and then, oh, we realized idealism was wrong. I mean, oh gosh, we've collected so much evidence against idealism in the intervening hundred years. No, that's not at all. <laughs> What happened? But yeah, Planck, Schrodinger, De Broglie, um, non-physicalism was pretty common among really important physicists. I don't know what Einstein thought. I mean, I know he was a spinozist. Uh, there are others that are escaping me right now, but anyway, that was a bit of a tangent. I just mean, I don't really see how more specific facts about consciousness really favor theism over atheism. So, back to the argument at hand. The objection, you know, the accusation of understating the evidence, as I understand it, is something like, well, theism predicts that consciousness will exist, but it doesn't predict that we would exist. Okay, but the fact that we exist is not evidence against theism. So how is this understated evidence? If this was understated evidence, then what should happen is that when you include the further details, it should become clear why the apparently blue bean is actually just a yellow bean, or maybe even a red bean. But that hasn't happened. You know, it's clearly not like the case of the knife. I think that the initial reaction of like, oh, this is, under, this is understated evidence. Yeah, that sounds plausible enough. I just would like to hear a little more about it. To quote Jeff Lauder, who, if you don't know, is the atheist who came up with this argument, While theism does not entail human consciousness exists, theism does entail consciousness exists, because theism entails that God exists and God is conscious, by definition. In contrast, naturalism is compatible with the non-existence of consciousness. So the existence of human consciousness, while not entailed by theism, isn't surprising on theism, in the way it is on naturalism. In that sense, human consciousness is evidence favoring theism over naturalism. End quote. So on theism, consciousness has already been admitted into our ontology. And theism is compatible with the non-existence of human consciousness, but it's not compatible with the non-existence of consciousness. Naturalism is compatible with the non-existence of both. 
It's very easy to imagine consciousness just not being a feature of our world. Yeah, there are certain forms of naturalism that entail that consciousness will be a feature of the world, like idealism and panpsychism, um, or maybe maybe even physicalism and the conjunction of other hypotheses that would make it so consciousness is kind of inevitable, or maybe even something like natural teleology. Um, I don't think Thomas Nagel believes that consciousness is fundamental, but he thinks that it arising was inevitable. Well, fundamental is tricky there. I, I mean that Nagel, I'd, even though he's sympathetic to panpsychism, he's sort of a fellow traveler, he doesn't think that consciousness is fundamental and ubiquitous, even though he does think it's irreducible. As far as I know, Jeff Lauder still endorses this argument. Um, he calls it the F-inductive argument from consciousness for theism. So I think the worst thing you could say about this argument is, A, just that it's understated evidence, but I would want to hear more specifics about why that is, because usually when someone says that, they start talking about physicalism, and I don't think that physicalism or dualism or whatever, I really don't think that these sorts of ideas favor theism or atheism. And B, I think you could say this evidence is just really weak. You know, it doesn't really move the needle that much. So, I don't know, maybe it is just really weak evidence favoring theism, but I think it definitely is evidence favoring theism. So the second argument I raised was psychophysical harmony, and by my lights, this was my main argument. So in a nutshell, our nature as conscious beings is partially or wholly dependent on laws of nature, laws which are ontologically prior to natural selection, and laws which conceivably could have varied in dramatic ways. So that means our nature as conscious beings conceivably could have been dramatically different in ways that would have been incredibly disharmonious and disvaluable. So we have these correlations between functional roles and subjective experiences, and these have been matched up kind of harmoniously. You know, the functional roles have been correlated with subjective experiences that make sense of that functional role. Our subjective experiences justify and rationalize those functional roles. So even if you're a physicalist and you think there's some kind of a posteriori identification between physical states and mental states, this problem still applies to you. You know, the physical brain states could have been identified with different subjective experiences that did not rationalize or justify or make sense of the functional states. You know, and this applies if you're a dualist, it applies if you're a panpsychist. You just have to imagine the physical world remaining fixed while the internal phenomenal world is just radically different. So at first you might think this requires epiphenomenalism, you know, because how could it be the case that your internal world is one way and the external world is exactly the same, unless the internal world is causally inert. So to preserve mental causation and get to this disharmonious state, you have to appeal to these fundamental laws that are ultimately responsible for correlating the phenomenal and physical states. You know, this couldn't take place in our universe. You'd have to have a different universe with different fundamental laws. So to get out of this argument, you know, you might think, well, I could argue that our psychophysical laws are necessary, that they couldn't have varied. 
and Dustin and I covered this in the conversation we had. It's also something you can read about in their paper, in uh, Dustin Crummett and Brian Cutter's paper, Psychophysical Harmony. It's still epistemically possible that the laws could have varied, you know, leading to these disharmonious states where we've got the physical world that's, you know, basically the same, but you've got an internal world that's chaotic or hellish as a consequence of the non-finely tuned psychophysical laws. So it's epistemically possible that those laws could have varied, and epistemic possibilities can be assigned probabilities. You know, you can make this point abstractly, but I think that a concrete example can help make more sense of it. This is what made it clear to me, at least. So imagine that necessitarianism is true. Literally nothing could have been otherwise than it is right now. So say we look up at the sky, and in the stars it says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, Uh, Jesus Christ is Lord or something. (laughs) And we discover that that's written in the stars in like, you know, 20 different languages. So the question is, does the necessitarian have to change their credence in theism? If you're saying no, that's completely crazy. You know, like the idea, well, well, I I think it's necessary that the stars would have that arrangement. It's completely unavoidable. Okay, but still you could conceive of the stars uh, not saying I'm the Alpha and the Omega in 20 different languages. You can conceive of that not being the case. Um, So even if you just say, oh, it's necessary. Okay, well, I mean, it clearly is evidence favoring theism. You know, this message in the stars is definitely (laughs) evidence favoring theism. We would not expect stars to have that kind of arrangement on atheism. It is very unexpected. (laughs) So yeah, you don't get out of that being evidence just because you say, oh, I think it was necessary. It couldn't have varied. Okay, well, that doesn't change the fact that this would be evidence favoring theism over atheism. So again, you can cash that out more abstractly, but I would encourage you just to read the paper. You know, they're going to put it better than I could. Um, But yeah, that example really uh, made it clear to me. So yeah, things conceivably could have been disharmonious. So you can imagine a world where the internal phenomenal world is chaotic or hellish, otherwise disharmonious, and the physical world is basically as it is. So yeah, that would be bad for us. And as they argue in the paper, the number of disharmoniously tuned universes is vastly greater, vastly greater than the number of harmonious universes. So it's not like indifference can really help with this. You know, the hypothesis of indifference is good at predicting a mixed bag, a mix of value and disvalue. But in this specific case, it's not like a 50-50 chance that we would have harmony or disharmony. Even so, this argument would still be interesting, but as it turns out, the number of disharmoniously tuned universes is vastly greater than the number of harmonious universes. There are more ways in which things could have gone wrong than they could have gone right. Again, there are some potential snags here, and I would just recommend the paper. It's kind of a long paper, it's kind of technical, but it's still very interesting, and it it covers a lot of interesting philosophical ground that has relevance beyond the argument. Anyway, the point is, on indifference, we won the cosmic lottery. But if fundamental reality, if foundational reality is not indifferent to realizing value or disvalue, if it has a tendency to realize value, then that assigns a higher probability to the observation of psychophysical harmony than indifference. So this is good evidence favoring theism. So there are some potential responses to this that I think are okay. You know, I'm curious about this whole revenge problem. 
you know, does some psychophysical harmony also apply to God, you know, God's mind? Um, so he doesn't have physical states, but he does have, you know, he is a conscious being. And psychophysical harmony isn't just about the harmonious relation between physical states and mental states, it's about the harmonious relation between mental states with other mental states. So you could, again, you could imagine disharmony here where one experience just naturally leads to another experience, but it, it just makes no sense. It's just chaotic or, or hellish, you know. So God being a conscious being, does that mean that some subset of psychophysical harmony also applies to him? I don't see how it wouldn't. So to answer that, you'd have to dig into your model of God and try to come up with some kind of explanation for why God's mind is harmonious. Now, there's less of a problem with psychophysical harmony for God's mind than our minds, because once again, um, unless you're a Mormon, God is not a physical being. Okay, so how would I respond to this argument? Because I'm still an atheist, so and I'm singing the praises of this argument. It's really powerful evidence. You know, I'm saying, oh my god, we won the cosmic lottery. Okay, well, that's not a very good explanation, so how am I still an atheist? Well, as is acknowledged in the paper, this evidence is underdetermined, meaning it's equally supportive of many different hypotheses. It supports aesthetic deism, the idea that there's a deistic god who has these aesthetic preferences, who wants there to be a great story, who wants there to be genuine triumph and tragedy, wants interesting things to happen, you know, and in order to have an interesting story, you have to have some degree of harmony. And maybe that would even do a good job of explaining the disharmony that we see. You know, it's not like we're frolicking in a perfectly harmonious wonderland here. Like, there is some psychophysical disharmony, but it's swamped by the harmony once you, once you grasp the immense range of potentially disharmonious scenarios. So this could be evidence for aesthetic deism. It's equally supportive of aesthetic deism. You'd have to decide between theism and aesthetic deism on other grounds. Psychophysical harmony is also equally good evidence for cosmopsychist axiarchism, the idea that there's a fundamental tendency to realize value. And that idea is similarly embedded in Thomas Nagel's natural teleology. There's a natural tendency to realize value. So you'd have to decide between Thomas Nagel's worldview and theism on other grounds. You'd have to make a comparison between you know, Thomas Nagel's worldview and Dustin Crummett's worldview, you know, and like you'd have to decide on other grounds, you know, or Philip Goff's uh, cosmopsychism, which includes axiarchism. Um, if you've never heard of that before, there's an Eon article that he wrote that kind of explains it. And he also had a conversation with Josh Rasmussen where they kind of debated the merits of theism versus cosmopsychism. So the point is that psychophysical harmony is equally good evidence for other ideas that are non-theistic. Aesthetic deism, natural teleology, and axiarchism, to name a few. And yeah, I'm interested in axiarchism. Um, I'm interested in natural teleology. Now, that is definitely not the end of the conversation. You can't just say, oh, I like axiarchism, and then dust off your hands. Like, you've got to flesh that out, and it's no easy task. There are unique challenges. I mean, once you go down this road, you kind of have to reinvent some things, right? Because you're not really in the ballpark of the hypothesis of indifference anymore. Not really. <laughs> and, you know, I like appealing to indifference, you know, to support atheism over theism in general. So if I really want to go down this path 
instead of just kind of flirting with it and being interested in it, like I have been, then I would possibly have to re-examine my case for atheism more generally. I mean, to solve the problem of psychophysical harmony, you need something that can give you a tendency to produce harmony, something that would bias the outcome towards a subset of possible worlds. Natural selection does not seem up for this particular task, and that's why I think you need some kind of -of out-of-the-box answers. But hey, I'm totally open-minded on this. I would love to hear about a solution (laughs) that doesn't involve something uh, that would dramatically alter the character of our worldview. But, you know, it's not the end of the world if, if that turns out to be the case. But anyway, you need something that can give you a tendency to produce harmony. Something that would make a subset of valuable possible worlds more likely, but perhaps not too likely, but still more likely than the others. So, I would just say this is not to be taken lightly. However, uh, you can fully accept the argument from psychophysical harmony and not be a theist. So, both of the arguments we discussed have something in common. A subset of forms of naturalism are uniquely capable of handling both lines of evidence. The evidence both in the case of consciousness and psychophysical harmony, is underdetermined. It's equally supportive of multiple hypotheses, theistic and non-theistic. But if we're keeping it at the level of generality, of theism versus naturalism, then we have to take into account that basically every type of theism can account easily for psychophysical harmony, and basically every form of theism entails that consciousness exists. Whereas only some forms of naturalism entail that consciousness exists, and only some forms of naturalism can easily account for psychophysical harmony. And for both, we'd have to go more into the realm of what Philippe Leon calls liberal naturalism. So if we're just comparing theism and naturalism without qualification, then both lines of evidence do favor theism. It's true that subcategories of naturalism will be able to predict the evidence just as well, and assign an equal probability, at least, to what we're observing as theism. So it can be done, but it's still correct to say that these two lines of evidence militate against naturalism, if we're talking about naturalism versus theism, and not taking it past that stage. Between certain forms of naturalism and theism, the evidence doesn't favor either one. It's a draw. Psychophysical harmony is equally supportive of theism, and of some non-theistic models as well. For independent reasons, I was already interested in some of these non-theistic ideas that stray from the more standard forms of naturalism. So they have independent motivation in my mind, and they happen to help, potentially, in these two areas of consciousness and psychophysical harmony. So it's not really a problem for atheism exactly. There are forms of naturalism, liberal naturalism, let's say, that have no trouble handling this evidence, or at least no more trouble than theists. So yeah, it's an interesting problem of worldview comparison. I mean, once you get more specific, you take on a heavier burden for yourself. So it would be nice if naturalism, like theism, could handle this evidence without any fuss, but we're not really in naturalism's wheelhouse right now. 
If we were trying to explain evil or hiddenness, then we would easily have the upper hand and theists would be in this position. You don't need to start invoking, I don't want to say ancillary hypotheses, but you don't have to start invoking things that go beyond naturalism versus theism simpliciter. If you're trying to explain evil or hiddenness on naturalism, it's really easy. Whereas on theism, you have to start getting into the weeds pretty quickly. So when it comes to these two lines of evidence, it's the naturalist who has to take on a heavier burden. about methodology after very briefly touching on models of God. And after talking about methodology, we covered the argument from consciousness for theism and the argument from psychophysical harmony. So I'm working on the next part right now, which should be out soon. That's when we'll cover widespread theistic belief and religious experience. You know, I have no trouble admitting that there is some evidence against my position. I mean, like, how crazy would it be if there was zero evidence against my worldview, like literally none. Of course there's some evidence against your position, no matter what it is. So yeah, I mean, there is some evidence for theism. I think that the case for atheism is better, obviously. (laughs) That's why I'm an atheist. And I actually do want to uh, do this sort of thing I'm doing right now in defense of atheism. Like, I want to work on a short cumulative case for naturalism that I'd present in a debate setting and see where that goes. So that's what I'm working on next, after I'm done expanding on this devil's advocate case for theism. But yeah, I mean, you should be able to admit that there is some evidence against your position. I don't know, I just find that some people have a very hard time admitting that there is literally any evidence against what they believe, you know, on both the theistic and atheistic side. But the world is ambiguous, man. I know I'm not the first to tell you. So with that, I think I will leave it there. I'm almost done with part two of this, so expect that soon. And there's a bonus episode for patrons that just came out on the fine-tuning argument. Thank you for listening. I've been Emerson Green, and I'll talk to you next time.